today as we're exploring um, First Peter, the focus of his, of his teaching, of the instruction from God's word, is on our security as one who is set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ, the security of a saint. And, and these verses are incredibly practical. They're incredibly important for us because he begins with that, that bold statement, who is there to harm you if you are eager for what is good? And even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so what he's doing is he's setting the stage for us to examine our own heart and life and to see the fears that we battle with and see how our trust in God being resurrected from the dead gives us a freedom from fear. Now, fear is a reality all of us face. Every one of us struggles with some form of fear. But my prayer is today that God, through the teaching of his word, will unmask your fear and my fear and allow us to walk in the security and the freedom of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I grew up on stories of, of the American Old West, stories of cowboys and outlaws. I mean, that was the kind of thing I, I heard. That was the television programs that were on when I, was a, when I was a boy. Those were the stories that I read. And my favorite story was about an outlaw that isn't as well-known, but um, was a great terror, and his name was Black Bart. Now, if you're going to be an outlaw, that's a great name, don't you think? You know, Black Bart. I mean, who wouldn't be afraid of Black Bart, right? But the thing about Black Bart was Black Bart was a fake. He was all a facade. In fact, he was all a mask. You can see a picture of him there. In fact, there's his, there's his mask. What made Black Bart terrifying because he robbed 29 stagecoaches and um, what made him so frightening was he had taken a flour sack, cut out three holes, and wore it as a mask. So no one ever saw his face. No one ever knew what he looked like, how big he was, how old he was. All they saw was this terrifying mask. And Black Bart would say, I never even had to load my gun. People were so afraid of the mask that they virtually would give me whatever I wanted. Now, there were some exceptions to that because in, in three of the instances where he did a robbery, there were people who stood up to him. One stood up to him with, um, he got a hatchet and was coming at him, even though Black Bart was there with his double-barreled shotgun pointed right at him, and the, and the guy with the hatchet came, and, and Black Bart turned around and ran. Second time, another one came up over the hill and, and had his gun and was ready to, to, to shoot at him. And what did Black Bart do? He turned and ran. The last time that happened, he actually got caught. That was the 29th and last stagecoach robbery that we know of. But um, he was caught. But every time someone stood up to the fear that they had of the mask, he would run. Because you see, in truth... Black Bart was an old man. And in fact, he had another persona where he at least pretended to be the owner of a mine in San Francisco and a gentleman. 
And so he wasn't this, this tough, mean outlaw that everybody thought. He was just a mask. And Black Bart would say this. He says, he did all these robberies without firing a shot. Because a hood hid his face, no one ever knew his true identity. He never took a hostage. He wasn't trailed by a sheriff. Instead, Black Bart would later say from prison he didn't need to fire a shot. In fact, he claimed his gun was never loaded. All he had to do was use fear to paralyze his victims. Fear, the face of the unknown, was my weapon of choice, my weapon of intimidation, he wrote. His sinister presence and his threat of words was enough to overwhelm even the toughest of guards. Now, I start with that story because I believe that is a good picture of fear for all of us. When we understand that it truly is a mask, when we can look and see from a different perspective, from God's perspective, he can help us to have the right viewpoint of our fears. Now, now fears are not, um, sometimes they're very reasonable. The evidence really points to, to serious situations. But even in those times, we need to make sure that we're remembering who is in control. And I believe that is ultimately what Peter is pointing us to. So I want you to think today, what is it that you fear most? What is it in your life that just grabs a hold of you and seeks to take control of your life, the struggles that you have. And I want you to think about what that is, whatever it is, because what I hope today is that we're able to give at least a little bit more of it to the Lord, to trust him a little more deeply. Whether it's disease or financial insecurity or being abandoned or failure or injury or disgrace, or death, what is it that you fear? And the second question is, how is that fear limiting you? You see, that's what fear does. It, it prevents us from fulfilling our God-designed destiny, from living out with a boldness of faith that we see um, lived out and exemplified in the early church. They faced very real fears, physical harm. Um, many of them were persecuted for their faith. Some were killed and executed. But they had a boldness in their faith that came from a right understanding of who was truly in control. And so what God is pointing us to in these verses is a way to be able to take off the mask and be able to rest secure in our Savior. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the news of the day, to become fearful of circumstances and events, but we need to remember that there is one thing that does not change, and that is God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we need to remember that our master never changes. He is the same, Jesus Christ. Our message never changes. 
It never changes because the message that we are to proclaim as we're told here in these verses is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is the victory. The resurrection of Jesus is the answer to every fear we face because if he can defeat sin and death, he can defeat anything you and I face. Also, not only does our master not change and our message not change, but our mission does not change. That we are called to share the good news with other people. And and here in these verses, we have this high call of always being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And that hope is set within the context of suffering. Now, we don't like hearing that as a Christian, you may have to suffer. We like the, whole, the idea of coming to God and you'll have all your needs met and things will be wonderful and beautiful and that's true to a degree ultimately. It is ultimately true. But in this life, it often is not. We face difficulty. And what we need to come to realize, what I believe that Peter is teaching us is to understand that our Greatest witness, our greatest witness will be faithfulness in the midst of fear and suffering. God can use that in ways that that nothing else will touch the hearts of people. And so it's important verses. Well, let's look and get a little bit more of what the scriptural perspective is that we're to have. Because there are so many different verses that focus in on this subject. Psalm 34, verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Now, now here's something I want you to, to, to take note of. David, the psalmist, is writing this and David was a brave man. As a youth, he had faced lions and bears. Um, as a young man, he had faced the, giant, faced the giant Goliath, but he acknowledges he has fears. He struggles with fears, just like you and I. So don't be ashamed if you have fear. It's evidence that you're human. But what we do with those fears is where we find freedom. Because what did he do? He sought the Lord and the Lord delivered him from his fears. It's it's super important because this particular verse is actually um, part of the same psalm that Peter quotes earlier in the verses. It focuses in on deliverance from fear. There's a great quote from F.B. Meyer that, that helps us to have the right perspective. He says, unbelief puts our circumstance between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstance. Those two different perspectives are absolutely um, polar opposites, but they are the answer to finding victory and freedom in the face of of our fears. It is the way that the mask of fear will come off. Unbelief puts our circumstance between us and God, but faith, faith in God puts him between us and our circumstances. What a great promise. So let's look at this passage, and, and here we have Peter saying, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous or eager for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ as Lord. And so the first thing that we come to 
is we need to, to recognize that fear is a mask, or the, the word I'm using because I alliterate things is the facade of fear. A facade is a face on a building or a front that's put forward that looks real, but it really is just decorative. And we need to recognize that to a large degree, that is what fear is. It is a false front that looks very, very real, but it doesn't have substance, at least not for a follower of Jesus. Fear is powerful, however, because of the way it affects us. It is a snare that can hold you and I prisoner. And there's a cycle of fear that you and I can enter into if we're, if we're not continually giving it over to the Lord. Fear, we face a, a, a scary or frightening situation or circumstance or, or just a big unknown. And the first thing that leads to is feeling out of control. And that's the point we want to grab a hold of because that's why we have fear is we're not in control. But that can be a turning point for us as well if we remember who is in control. That this circumstance does not take God by surprise. But what happens is if we, um, if we surrender our, ourselves to that fear, it begins to make chemical changes both in our mind and in our body. Our nervous system becomes activated and, and, and it begins to build upon itself. In fact, physiologically, the blood drains from our cerebral cortex and it causes our logic to begin, our reason to begin to diminish. Physiologically, that's what happens in us when we begin to give in to fear. It builds upon itself. And so a clarity of thought is lost and we're not able to think straight. And it just builds upon itself if we allow it to do so. Now, there's all kinds of different acronyms for fear, and, and I don't think any of them really quite encapsulate all what it is. One of the ones that's probably best known is fear is false evidence appearing real. And that's a, that's a good statement because oftentimes it is, uh, the reality isn't what it seems, but sometimes there's good evidence to be afraid. Sometimes the circumstances are, are, are difficult, and, and we recognize that um, this could lead to, to physical harm or, more importantly, the greatest fears we often have is harm to someone we love, someone we care about. So that's one that gives us a glimpse of truth, but I don't think it gives us the whole picture. Um, another one is fueled emotions against reason. And sometimes this is exactly what we deal with, is that we're fighting between how we feel and what we think. There's a battle going on between those two things. Another one, I, I know this one is, is one I wrestle with a lot, is fear is failure expected as reality or failure expected and rewarded. So many times, the reason that we're fearful is because we're just assuming from the beginning we're gonna fail. And what that means is we're convinced God isn't gonna show up, that he's not gonna be there. And it leads us to fear. But in reality, I believe there is one acronym that, that really works for the believer. And it is this. Fear is forgetting Emmanuel as rescuer. Forgetting that God with us really is with us and he has already rescued us. 
That's the hope we have. That's the difference between us and someone who does not have hope in Jesus Christ, is that God isn't with them, and so they are on their own, and so therefore feeling out of control is incredibly terrifying. But for us, as followers of Jesus, we need to remember that Jesus came to be with us in every circumstance we face. Because you see, ultimately, what fear is for us is forgetting God. This is what we see when Jesus is dealing with the disciples, when he, when he deals with um, Peter walking on the water. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you forget about me? And what happened was the moment that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, the moment he forgot, he began to sink. And that's what happens to each of us. That's what we all struggle with. So fear is forgetting God. It's forgetting that he is with you. It's forgetting that he is for you. It's forgetting that he has already rescued you in Jesus Christ. This is why we're told over and over again in the scriptures to fear God. Now, it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. It's absolutely not. Don't forget who he really is. That's what it means to fear God. Don't forget who he really is and what he has done because the fear of God ultimately casts out every other fear. When we recognize that God is in control and we give him the right place, it relieves every other fear we face. It's the secret to being able to have peace in our heart, in our life. Well, how do we apply this or how does Peter apply this more importantly? He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous or eager for what is good? And that should cause us to ask the question, what does we mean by harm? And what does Peter mean by harm? As a believer in Jesus Christ, can you truly suffer harm? Now, some of your, your, the first thing you're thinking of is, well, yeah, you can, you know, someone could shoot you, you could be stabbed, you could be in an auto accident. Physically, you could be damaged or killed. But does that harm who you are? It's a deeper question. When it comes to us as, as humans, I believe ultimately what harm means is to prevent us from fulfilling our destiny our God-designed destiny from becoming who God created and saved us to be. And that kind of harm cannot happen to a believer. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you may go through physical trials, but you cannot be harmed in who you truly are. Because that is held secure in Jesus Christ and no one, nothing can take that out of his hands. So in that sense, there is no harm that can come upon us. God made you and me in his image. You have a destiny to fulfill. And harming you would mean to somehow short circuit that destiny and somehow block its fulfillment. It would mean to keep that accomplishment from happening, and yet God has ordained it. And we need to remember that if God is in control, and God has called us, and God is for us, then nothing can truly harm who we are in him. That was the faith of the early church. 
That's the viewpoint that they took on suffering, is they recognized that they were secure, and that gave them the ability to face incredibly difficult circumstances. From an eternal perspective, nothing can harm a believer because nothing can diminish your value. It is held secure in Christ. That is good news. And for us, I think harm, because I'm, I'm all about acronyms today, so I think harm has a whole different definition. Harm is he already rescued me, so there's no harm that can come to me. Nothing I face can ever take me out of his hands. He already rescued me, and that is great news. That's what Peter wants us to understand. Faithfulness in the midst of our suffering is our most powerful witness because it reveals the hope we have in Jesus like nothing else. That's the good news. And that's the power of our witness. That's why he sets these, these words about um, always being ready to tell others the reason for the hope that is within you in the, in the midst of suffering is because this is our most powerful witness. You know, if we see someone who is successful, we'll look for what breaks they got. We'll look for what opportunities and advantages they had. And we'll, we'll think about how that opportunity opened up the door for success in their life. But when you see a person who has hope in the midst of suffering, there is no logic or reason that answers how they have that hope. It does not come from normal circumstances or natural relationships. It has to come from something higher. It comes from God. And that's why it is our most powerful witness. Here's what we need to understand, church. If we have this perspective, then we can recognize that God can use our trials to accomplish his greatest glory because it it makes us most reflective of what Jesus has done for us. He suffered in our place, but that wasn't the end of the story. He was willing to endure the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. He had joy even in walking towards the cross. As dark as hard as it was, he had his eyes fixed on something greater. The victory of the resurrection and the victory of our redemption. Think about that in the saints of old. How in truth they were not harmed. Though they were killed, their value never diminished. The first um, incident of violence we find in the scripture is the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain was jealous of his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and in jealousy, Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. Abel died. But the scriptures reveal that the very ground in which, into which Abel's blood soaked cried out to the Lord. And Abel, who is listed in um, the Hall of Faith in first, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter eleven, his faith still is celebrated. The reality of who he is is still there. 
His value is still there. He is safe and secure in God's presence. And so even though physically he was harmed and he didn't have the life that he expected to have, he had a life that cries out about the justice of God. In the same way, in the New Testament, the first martyr for the faith is Stephen. And Stephen was a a servant. He was one of the first deacons in the church. And in his faithfulness in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders were offended because of the power of his preaching, because of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his life, and they stoned him to death. And yet, in the midst of that, Stephen cries out that he sees the Lord Jesus. Stephen was safe in God's presence because God was with him at every moment. And now he is with God. And the ultimate victory will be displayed at the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all the saints. Stephen was faithful in the midst of suffering and his example brought glory to God and ultimately fulfilled his destiny and purpose. A.W. Tozer talks a lot about, um, about the fear of death. He says, A terrible fear, in particular of death, is not the teaching of the Scriptures. In fact, the psalmist says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints in Psalm 116, verse 15. I would not underestimate, nor would I in any way try to rise poetically above death or show that death is not something to shock us and startle us and frighten us. I would be a liar if I tried. But... I believe that death is the devil's last indignity. It is his last ferocious attack that he makes upon the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. But he can only reach the tent and not the spirit of the person who is safe in Christ. In other words, God will never let go of you. Even though your body may die. In fact, all of our bodies will die unless the Lord comes back. Who we truly are is absolutely secure. That's what Peter is trying to say when he says, who is there to harm you? Especially when you're zealous, when you're eager to see God be represented, eager to do good. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. This is ultimately what we're talking about. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, and that's God's, God's judgment. That's where our fear needs to be placed. This body is only a, tempor- is only a tabernacle. It's only a tent that houses who we truly are. And God promises to those who are in Christ to give us a brand new, really good non-fading, non-sagging, non-getting-old tent. Yes, I look forward to that more and more. So what are we to do? I believe what we're to do is to face our fears in the light of our eternal, eternal security in Jesus. 
Romans says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our hope. That's why nothing can harm us. Our security is in God, not in the things of this world. Our faith, um, not our safety. Our security is in eternity, not in our present circumstances. Our security is in the fact that even though life is dangerous, God is good and God is in control. Ultimately, there are only two things that can truly hurt who you are. Two things. Number one is you. By choosing to turn away from God, And to stay in your own sin, your own selfishness, your own pride, you short-circuit what God created you to be. Disobedience will keep us from fulfilling the destiny God has for us. Disobedience, even in the life of a Christian, can keep us from enjoying the intimacy and fellowship that we're to have with God. It does not cause us to lose our salvation because it is God's work, not ours. But it can harm our intimacy, our fellowship. It can harm whether or not our prayers are answered. It can bring about a a division or a, a wound in our relationship with him on a personal and daily level. So we can harm ourselves. The only other harm is if we continue to remain outside of Christ, then we would face the fact that God himself is holy and is judge. Those are the only two things that can harm us. So Peter goes on and and tries to give us the right perspective, and then he gives us the fortress of faith, the thing where to place our security. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Isn't that a great promise? That if you face trials, I mean, think about the people that that we read about, that we know about, who are under persecution right now. In in several of of your home countries, it it is a very real uh, um, experience to suffer hurt or imprisonment. And yet, the scripture says there was a blessing. I think of, um, of Pastor Andrew who's in, uh, in prison in, in Turkey because of his faith in Christ. And yet I am confident that if we could have a conversation with him, he would tell you that yes, it is difficult, but let me tell you how God has worked. Because that is the testimony of believer after believer after believer throughout the history of the church of God's faithfulness. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard, set apart Christ as Lord, as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that the hope is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Our most powerful witness is our faithfulness in trials because it points to something much greater. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? (laughs) I love his answer. It's simply, why not? (laughs) He replied, they're the only ones who should be able to take it. Isn't that true? Yes. We have a hope beyond this life that should overcome our fear and our insecurity because ultimately people who have set apart Christ as Lord have three distinctive marks. At least this is, this is our goal. The first one is that we are to face one direction and that is towards Christ, towards his will, towards his purpose. Secondly, we do not turn our back on the face of fear. Doesn't mean we may not be anxious, we may not struggle, but we turn and choose to obey Christ by his strength and by his power. And thirdly, is that they no longer have plans of their own, but their plans are submitted to the will of God. That is the fortress of faith, which is the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. And he has proved his faithfulness through his death, And his resurrection, it gives us our reason for hope in the midst of hurt, indignity, and death. We have nothing to fear because Jesus died for us and he will never deny those who place their faith in him. Your value is absolutely secure. Well, thirdly, we have the function of trials. We have the facade of fear. We have a fortress of faith. And then we need to understand that there is a function, a purpose in our trials. And that is to reveal that hope can be found in God. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then it goes on into some of the most controversial, confusing verses in all of the Bible, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, like I said, this, this has a, is a very challenging passage, and I'm gonna tell you exactly what it means, okay? I'm gonna, I am gonna take a stand that none of you will be able to refute, I don't have a clue. Okay, I actually, I have some clues and I have some opinions, but I have no desire to try to have you agree with my position on this because I'm about that confident in my position. In fact, the best commentary I've seen on this passage comes from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, 
A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. I agree with Martin Luther. <laughs> I think it's pretty, because it, there's some questions that we have here, and just for a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through it, because there's three questions that this passage causes us to ask. First of all, who are the spirits in prison? Are they unbelievers who have died, possibly from Noah's day? That would seem to fit the context that, um, that the spirit of Christ was speaking through Noah who proclaimed the gospel for 120 years before the flood came. Um, is it Old Testament believers who are held in Sheol or paradise? That's a second strong possibility. Um, a third possibility, is he referring, when he says spirits, is he referring to fallen angels that he went and proclaimed to those who were in prison? All three of those are possibilities, and there are some commentators that believe in, in other possibilities as well, but those are the three major ones. Second question is, what did Jesus proclaim? Um, did he proclaim a second chance? There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever in the Scripture that that's what this was about. But false teachings about purgatory have risen up in part because of this verse. But there's nothing saying there that anyone got saved. It doesn't say he proclaimed the gospel to them. It says he proclaimed to them, he preached to them. So, um, so there's no evidence that that's the possibility of what happened. Secondly, um, did he proclaim the victory of redemption in his resurrection? That is very likely a possibility. And thirdly, did he proclaim judgment? Well, depending upon who he talked to, either one of those or both of those could have been a possibilities. And the third big question is, when did Jesus proclaim this? Was it in the days of Noah through his spirit speaking through Noah to those who were disobedient because the world had become so incredibly corrupt and so evil and so violent? Is that what he's referring to? Because those people who disobeyed God are now in prison. And so it, that one fits the context. Is this referring to a time when he, after he died, between his death and his resurrection? Um, the scripture talks in other places about how he went and led captivity captive. And, and we understand now that, that um, to be absent from the body for a believer in Jesus Christ is to be present with the Lord. However, in Jesus' own teachings, prior to his, um, his death and resurrection, um, it was an understanding that there was a holding place, Sheol, where both the righteous and the unrighteous were held, basically waiting for um, the fulfillment of God's work and God's plan. The, for the righteous, that was called paradise. That's when he says to the, to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And when he talks about Lazarus and the rich man in his, in his um, parable, he's referring to that divide that is there. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom or to paradise and is there with him. And the rich man who was rebellious against God was in torment. Um, the scriptures reveal in, in Acts that there were a great number of resurrections that happened at Jesus' resurrection, others that came back to life as testimony of God's power and victory. And at some point, it seems that he took those who were imprisoned to, um, to be in the presence of the Father. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is that what he's talking about? 
I don't know. It's a possibility. Or did this occur after his resurrection? All those are, are possibilities. And I'm not going to try to convince you of one point or another because what ultimately this is pointing to is this truth. God is victorious. And no matter how dark things seem, no matter whether or not it seems like evil is winning, it does not mean that the story is over yet. Noah preached for 120 years, and the only people who listened were his sons and daughter-in-law. Not a very successful ministry from a human standpoint. Now, there may have been others who repented and who, um, who died before the, the flood, who listened during that time, but it looked pretty bleak for Noah, year after year of people not listening. But it wasn't the end of the story. God is victorious. Just as during those three days for the early church, when Jesus died, all hope was extinguished in their hearts. It was fearful. But it wasn't the end of the story. That's why we have hope is because God proved that he is victorious in his resurrection. And that's why this passage is, is using the parallel as well of baptism, because what baptism does, is, and is, it's parallel to, um, to Noah's day, is that this, in Noah's day, the same judgment that brought about the justice of God upon those who were disobedient, that same thing brought about the rescue of Noah and his family. They were preserved from the judgment in the ark, just as you and I are preserved from God's judgment in Jesus Christ. And what baptism does, just like walking into the door of that ark did, was it made a public proclamation that I identify with Jesus Christ and I am following him. It doesn't save us, it reflects what has happened inside. That our faith is not in ourselves, but in a God who is greater than death. That's why baptism is such an important expression of our faith. And if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you, send me an email or give me a call this week and we can talk about that. Because it is a chance for you to proclaim your following Christ to honor him. And, and it leads to a great conscience, a good conscience, because it proclaims, I belong to Jesus with all that I am, and I want to follow him as best I can. All right, well, I'm, I'm out, of, out of time. I took, took a little too long on, on part of that passage. I know you're shocked. But trials ultimately um, have a purpose in our life. There, you see, there are two kinds of suffering that you and I can endure. We can suffer for sin, but Jesus already suffered for our sin. Now, he calls us then to turn away from our sin and not to enter back into it, but he already paid that price. The second kind of suffering is for righteousness' sake. This suffering does not harm us. It strengthens us and it serves God's glory and will be redeemed. 
The two types of suffering have a similar, similar product. Both trial and temptation squeeze us to reveal what's inside. You see, that's ultimately what happens. You know, if you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? That's a great, that's a great answer, um, but really the answer is what's inside, okay? Because you never know, some strange people like would, I, if, I almost thought about doing this, injecting dye or something in it and trying to freak you out. What comes out when we're squeezed is what's on the inside. In the case of a lemon, it should be lemon juice. In the case of a believer, when we're squeezed by trial, what should come out is God's presence in us. Temptations are redemptive to you and I, whereas trials are redemptive to others. You see, when God helps you walk through a temptation and proclaims victory and delivers you, when you say, when you pray as, the, as he teaches, deliver, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, and you have victory, it's a reminder that God is with you. When we go through trials, on the other hand, they are redemptive towards others. Temptations reveal how much of me is left inside of me. They reveal areas of my life that need to be given back to God. Trials, on the other hand, reveal how much of Jesus is in me. That's what gets seen. You see, trials, work, uh, trials reveal God's work of salvation. They reveal their purpose is to reveal Jesus in and through us. That, I believe, is what, what Peter is trying to help us understand. And the way for us to apply this is to, to live on the firm foundation of who we are in Christ Jesus and the promises of his word. So what I want to end with are just some verses of Scripture that remind us he is for us. The truth is fear is, is, a, is a battle we all face. That's why 365 times in the Bible, once for every day, we're told in one form or another to fear not, to not be anxious, because we all face it. Every one of us. Like I said, that's what David was wrestling with. So this hits us right where we are. But he says, here's how you can have hope. Listen to his promises. Here's a partial list, and this is what I want to close with. And what I want you to do is think of Think of the things that you struggle with in fear, whatever they are. Your list will be different than my list, but that doesn't mean my list is any better than yours. They're just different. Think of those fears and then think of these promises from God. God promises in Romans 8 that um, God will work all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's his promise. Matthew 6, says, God will provide all the necessities of life. He will give you what you need. 1 Peter 4, 14 says, God will give you his glory in the face of insults. That's a great promise. When you're fearful about sharing your faith, when you're insulted about sharing your faith, he says he'll give you his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 11 the life of Christ is best manifest in the midst of our fears and our suffering. It's his promise. He says this, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our human or mortal flesh. 
God also promises to provide great rewards to those who stand firm in fear and in suffering. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God promises to preserve us and take us to heaven as we stand in him against our fears and suffering, according to 2 Timothy 4, 8. When we choose faith over fear, people will see the difference in our life and in our spirit because they will see Jesus. So let us not forget Emmanuel, God with us as our rescuer. Let us not forget God, but let us listen to what we're prompted to do in the scriptures. Deuteronomy says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for your Lord, your God, goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 41, verse 10 says the same thing. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. These promises are what we are to build our life on. And that's how they rescue us from fear. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And finally, in Revelation, it says, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. God is with us. That is our hope. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I pray that today you would speak to each and every heart Lord, all of us struggle with the reality of fear because there's so many things that are outside of our control. Lord, would you strengthen our faith this day? Would you help us to see our security in you is absolutely assured? And Lord, would you enable us to turn from fear to faith in you? And Lord, comfort our hearts with the goodness of who you are that we can place every anxiety, every concern in your hands, remembering that you are with us and you will never leave us, never forsake us. Lord, give us a boldness in our faith because we're reminded today that no matter what we face, you are bigger. In Jesus' great and mighty name.